Good morning, everyone. It's good. I'm grateful for the chance to speak uh, this morning. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The lectionary's gospel text uh, for the first Sunday in Lent is always about Jesus' wilderness temptation. One year, the version in Luke, one year, the version in Matthew, and this year, the version in Mark that we just heard is perfectly appropriate given the penitential focus of the Lenten season. But the Mark passage um, is quite different from the accounts in Matthew and Luke, which are both much more interested in the specific substance of the temptations that Jesus was exposed to in the wilderness. Mark, by contrast, does not develop the content of the testing at all. Mark is short and sweet, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The 40 days recall the 40 days and nights of rain in the flood story, in which Noah and his family were preserved in the ark. They also recall the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness between the Exodus and their entry into the land of promise. They also recall Elijah in the wilderness in 1 Kings, after Jezebel threatens to kill him and he flees in fear for his life. Elijah was 40 days in the wilderness, and angels ministered to him, providing him with food and drink in the desert. In all of these stories, the wilderness is a severe place, a dangerous place, a place that is hostile to life. And in these stories, the wilderness is also the place where God acts to preserve life, to save. And that's part of what the wilderness in Mark is too. We heard during Advent about John the baptizer who made his home in the wilderness, in the land of inconvenience, in a place hostile to comfort and to safety. It was in this wilderness that the Lord moved in John to prepare the way for the Messiah, to call people into a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism that signified a turning away from the ways of life that flowed with the grain of the world in first century Palestine, and signified a turning into the ways of the Lord. In our passage, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to John, one of many, many who streamed into the desert in response to John's call. Jesus is immersed in the waters of repentance like many of those others, signifying his commitment to the way of the Lord, signifying his humility and obedience. He does this as an example for us. We should take the humility of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus as a model for us to imitate. But Jesus does not do this only as an example for us. Jesus also does this just for us, on our behalf, as an act of effective solidarity with us. One of the ways that Mark shows this is by connecting the baptism of Jesus with the early chapters of Genesis, and by linking Jesus with Adam in particular. So the spirit in our passage, the spirit descending in the form of the dove, echoes the spirit hovering over the waters of chaos. And the spirit descending on Jesus, and in some early manuscripts descending into Jesus, recalls God breathing his spirit into Adam. And the voice that acclaims Jesus as my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, echoes the way in Genesis that after creating male and female in God's image on the sixth day, God saw all that God had made, and indeed, indeed it was very good. So the baptism of Jesus is a new creation story with Jesus as a new Adam, 
standing at the head of a new humanity of which we have been made a part. And the connection with Adam might also help to explain the jarring language that Mark uses to describe what the Spirit does to Jesus immediately after he comes out of the water. Literally, the text says that the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. Casting out is what the Spirit-empowered Jesus will do to unclean spirits very soon in Mark's Gospel. And while the word is certainly not only used for exorcisms, it does carry the implication of forcefulness and almost of violence. For the Spirit to cast Jesus out into the wilderness in this way, I think again echoes Genesis, recapitulating Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden into the land east of Eden, a land of toil and danger, a wilderness. But the point of narrating a new creation story is that things will be different this time. And so here, where Adam's faith and Eve's faith faltered, Jesus in the wilderness endures. Jesus keeps faith in the face of the devil's temptations because the Lord preserves him, even in the midst of wild beasts. And then having been tested, Jesus walks out of the wilderness after 40 days and into Galilee and declares the gospel, that the kingdom of God, the effective rule and reign of the Lord who ripped the heavens apart and came down, has drawn near. The kingdom of this world, the house of the strong man, as Jesus calls Satan in Mark 3, has now been breached, and by the, the steadfast, humble obedience of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, the strong man will be bound, and the house will be plundered. Not by violence, the Spirit descends not as an eagle, which Mark's audience would have seen perched high atop Roman imperial battle standards, but as a dove. Not by violence, but by the unshakable commitment of the Lord, whose ways, as we heard in the passage from the Psalms, are steadfast love and faithfulness. The gospel that Jesus announces has two parts, an indicative, a statement of fact, a statement of something that has happened, of something that just is the case, and an imperative, a command. And we should see that the indicative comes before the imperative, not just in the order of the words in the text, but also theologically. The indicative, the kingdom of God has drawn near, is the ground in which Jesus plants the imperative, repent and believe the good news. This isn't to downplay or minimize the importance of the command. Jesus commands us to repent, and so we must. The crucial thing is to recognize that the gospel is first and fundamentally good news, not advice. It's the announcement of what God has done out of God's own sovereign freedom and mercy to free us for repentance and then for obedience and gratitude. This good news that Jesus proclaimed with its attendant command is perennial, but Lent is a season specially marked for repentance, for looking honestly at our lives as siblings, as friends, as children, as parents, as neighbors, as disciples, as those whom God has acted in power to free for life in God's kingdom. In how many ways do we still need to repent, to turn around, to turn away from the ways of life that go with the grain of life in this world? ways of life that are marked by fearfulness, selfishness, 
by a bedrock commitment to securing my own life and livelihood, by what Jesus later describes in Mark as wanting to save my life. And in how many ways do we need to try to understand and ask the Lord for discernment to be able to see the ways in which we are still bound. Lent is for considering these things carefully, for submitting ourselves to the Spirit's testing and listening to the Spirit's witness to us. But the Spirit must open our ears to hear the Spirit's voice, and in the meantime, there are plenty of other voices crying out in the wilderness, clamoring for our attention and conspiring to distract us from quiet attention and humble obedience. At root, the temptations will be some version of the original one, which is to despair of the goodness of the Lord, to concede at some level that God may not simply be good or may not really be good for us. This was the root of the serpent's suggestion to Eve in the garden. Even though Eden was good, it was a place where God's provision was abundantly evident everywhere and where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. It was behind the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness and their desire to return to Egypt after they had lived the Lord's deliverance firsthand. I think this was also at the root of the, of the temptation that came for Jesus in his wilderness sojourn. Is the Lord really trustworthy? When push comes to shove, will the Lord keep faith with you? Maybe the Lord's way will not be quite enough to meet the challenge and opposition that await you. And at root, these are the same temptations that we face too. When our bodies or our minds or our spirits become strangers or enemies to us. When friends or family abandon or betray us or we them. When we are overwhelmed by our own neediness or guilt or shame or fear. There is a voice that will say that God must not really love you. That God is not at the end of the day fundamentally for you. And there's a voice that accuses and that condemns, saying that you are hopeless, a failure, a mistake, or a waste. In the idiom of Isaiah 63, which lies in the background to our passage, there's a voice that will tell us that we are among those whom the Lord does not rule that we are among those who are not called by the Lord's name. But in Jesus, the Lord says to all of that, no, no. The Lord has not abandoned us to the strong man who rules the world, to the powers that hold us captive. Rather, the Lord has ripped apart the heavens and come down to interpose the Lord's self between us and those powers to make the wilderness of fallen creation the site of God's merciful preserving and liberating work. In and as the man Jesus, the Lord has acted out of an unshakable commitment and a supreme fidelity to deliver the world, including you and me, from out of captivity to sin and death and the devil, and to free us for lives marked by humble obedience and gratitude. So, in the wilderness of Lent, let's listen to Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news.